This is episode number 29 of the Polyglot Developer Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Raboy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. The topic of this episode is around asynchronous JavaScript development. And as a special guest on the show, we actually have Corbin Crutchley, who's going to come and share his experience on the topic. If you're like me, you're coming to JavaScript from other programming technologies. So when you enter the JavaScript world, these concepts such as callbacks, promises, observables, all this stuff might be relatively new and confusing to you. But it's very important because of how JavaScript does things in parallel, whether that be network requests or something else. The goal of this episode is to explain why things are the way they are in JavaScript and kind of expand your knowledge on which should you actually be using? How should you actually be using this asynchronous functionality that JavaScript offers? Should you be using callbacks? Should you be using async await? How should you be using those? So just just little things like that that can make a, a huge difference in your JavaScript development career. With that said, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, I'm with Corbin Crutchley, and we're going to be talking about asynchronous JavaScript development. But before we get into the core material of this particular episode, I want to give Corbin a chance to introduce himself. So how are you doing, Corbin? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So uh, why, don't, why don't you start by telling us a little, about, a little bit about yourself so that way we can get an idea of your background um, and, and what you're working on. For sure, for sure. Um, right now, I'm working uh, for Hilton as what they call a render tier developer, which is uh, really someone who works on their front end. Um, previously, I've worked uh, startups. Uh, I was a system administrator for a high school. I've done some contracting work a little bit here and there, um, but most of it's been web development. Uh, I like retro game collecting. I love open source. I maintain a library called uh, Node Vibrant that I'm probably going to reference throughout this um, just because it uses a lot of asynchronous stuff that's kind of interesting. Um, I don't know. I just like talking to people and enjoying the communication between them. So is the majority of your background in front-end development or is it kind of a mixed bag? Um, it's kind of a mixed bag. I've come into my own with front-end development just because it's what I've had to do the most for work. Uh, but I've done a lot of back-end development on side projects and even for work itself. My last job was um, about 50-50 split between front-end and back-end. And is it safe to say that most of your time is spent doing some kind of JavaScript, whether that be front-end or back-end? Yeah, for sure. I've done a little bit with other languages, but uh, really my bread and butter is JavaScript. I've done Node, uh, plenty, plenty of Node, uh, plenty, plenty of JavaScript, whether that be uh, React, Vue, Angular, you name it. I've uh, probably dabbled in it at least a little bit. So let's let this take us into the the kind of core subject. And this, just for clarity, this this episode won't have an emphasis on any of those front-end frameworks that you mentioned, but right. it doesn't mean that we can't bring them up. For sure. Um, so what can you tell me about asynchronous JavaScript development? What does that exactly mean? So the idea behind asynchronicity in really any development language, whether that's JavaScript, um, C++, anything, um, is the idea that you have two tasks that are running in an order that you might not expect them to. So you have uh, programming languages that will just run line by line exactly as you would expect it to. 
But asynchronous is really just the idea of things running either concurrently, so at the same time, um, or out of order a little bit. Uh, and that's kind of just the general meaning of asynchronous. Do you have mm. any examples of something that might be asynchronous? For sure. Uh, anytime you make a network call on your browser, that's considered asynchronous. Um, you're not waiting and uh, not doing anything until uh, you return the data. You're you're getting the data and during the data, uh, some things will be running in the background. Um, you might show a loading spinner for the user. You might prompt them to do something. Uh, but there's a lot of tasks that are happening at the same time with really any application, especially in the web. Do you have any examples of things that might not um, involve a network request? Uh, for sure. So something along the lines of processing an image. If I want to be able to uh, get colors out of an image uh, that are the primary colors in that image and display it to the user, that would be asynchronous um, because you don't want to lock up the UI while you're doing that operation. You usually want to show them something to let them know that they're waiting. Um, and that's something that um, I've implemented, um, or at least helps maintain with uh, Node Vibrant. Um, so. now, now, to clear things up, when somebody, uh, I hear this uh, thrown around a lot, when somebody's talking about asynchronous development with JavaScript, um, often you'll you'll hear things called like non-blocking or multi-threaded. Is this the same stuff, or is this are these completely different topics? They're related but different. So uh, with JavaScript, you have what is known as the event loop, right? The event loop is something that your browser or Node uh, will run for you in Chrome. That's V8. Um, in Node, it's also V8. In uh, Firefox, SpiderMonkey. But what it does is it runs your tasks. And by default, it is not multi-threaded. So what that means is that if you have an operation that's really, really expensive, uh, takes a really long time to operate, it's going to restrict everything else from running, uh, depending on how it's programmed. The idea behind asynchronousity is that it allows you to be able to run fairly expensive operations so long as they're programmed properly without having to run them in different threads. So you're running them within one instance and it will just decide, okay, you're done running for now. Let me run something else and I'll come back to you. When you start getting into threads is when you start breaking that out. So you have multiple different instances of things running and they will wait for uh, one to finish, but they can all run at the same time, not just kind of coming back to one when it's able to. So how, I mean, just to paint a picture, how exactly is it possible to do these, I guess, parallel operations without having multi-threaded um, or multiple threads involved? How is, this, how is this possible in JavaScript? So JavaScript as a language handles most everything asynchronously. Um, the language will allow you to be able to uh, handle things one by one so you know that if you do one plus two and then console log the variable it'll give you three uh, but there are other instances where uh, the event loop will try to run one operation and know just because of the way that the uh, engine is managed that it can run something else before it needs to run through more loops of the other thing so it's really even though it looks like it's uh multi-threaded to the developer and to the user uh really it's just a very clever game of uh playing juggling 
inside of the engine itself. It requires a lot of optimizations from uh, the engine development team. Uh, and oftentimes there's a lot that you can do as the developer to help that process. Do you have an example of how you as a developer can help that process? For sure, for sure. So uh, in JavaScript, there's a lot of different tools at your disposal to allow for asynchronous uh, development. So there's promises, there's async await, which is uh, built on top of promises and can really be just seen as a, a sugar, a nicer way to use promises. Um, but the idea there is that you want to make sure that you're building things in such a way that you're not lumping uh, everything together and demanding that they one run at a time. You want to really leverage asynchronous style programming into your code with JavaScript. So what this might look like is uh, you have a promise that will go grab data, and at the same time, you'll have a promise that will maybe go tell your operating system, or not your operating system, but your browser that you want to request data to save. Something along those lines. Um, promises are, are a way of sending out a command and waiting for the result in a due amount of time. It doesn't mean that you have to run the code immediately one right after the other. So are, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm, I think I'm a lot older than you are, but uh, I grew up with, with callbacks. Are promises built upon callbacks? Are they um, how, I, um, I guess every modern JavaScript developer probably knows to use a promise over a callback now, but, but why? Um, well, one, I, I personally would argue against uh, kind of black and white thinking when it comes to promises and callbacks. While there are absolutely use cases for promises, there are often instances where a callback might be advantageous, whether it be for a simpler API, uh, you might not need to have a return value. Like there's a lot of instances where a callback still makes a lot of sense. Um, and even some of the, the bigger uh, modern frameworks still handle that. So for example, passing in a component in higher ordered components with React is an example of a callback. Um, but one of the things that you get when you you when you're using promises is the ability to chain things, right? So uh, any JavaScript developer who's worked with ECMAScript 5, um, older JavaScript, will be able to tell you that once your program really starts going, when you start getting a lot of things that you need to happen one after another, you start getting what's called callback hell, right? You'll get yeah. a, kind of a Christmas tree that, that ends up spiking way out into line uh, 500, you know? Um, and Promises, while they don't intrinsically solve that, you still have to engineer your way around to fixing that. Uh, it makes it much easier. And there are also advantages when it comes to trying to run multiple of these at a time. If you had three or four callbacks that you expected to run and then return, you'd have to have a helper library, and then that library might have to interconnect with some other things. It, it's a lot of work. Uh, promises have some of that stuff built in when it comes to like promise.all will wait for a list of promises to finish. Uh, there's future implementations of stuff like promise. Uh, I can't remember what the name of it is, but there's other uh, use cases where you might want to wait until all promises go through. And if one of them fails, don't worry about it. Uh, there's a lot of use cases where promises allow the developer much easier time uh, to be able to uh, leverage their natural code styling rather than callbacks. Yeah, so it sounds like promises offer uh, a little more power 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming though that you could easily create a, a ch- kind of chaining hell with promises, like you could callbacks. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, like I had mentioned earlier, promises don't solve uh, anything that, uh, let's say, lack of engineering would cause. Right. If if I don't take the time to sit down and think through how I'm going to go about uh, implementing promises um, and even async await, which uh, tends to make the syntax a little bit nicer, in my opinion, uh, you don't solve the problem just by uh, implementing them. They can definitely have the same problem where you're left with like a, a promise Christmas tree, you know, a little bit in more yeah. interesting, but the same problem. Um, so it's important to really think through the way that you're implementing these. So let's talk a little bit more about async and await because that I, that's new to me. I know that it's been around for a while, but I've been using it recently and I'm probably using it wrong, but it's pretty awesome stuff <laughs> for me. Um, so, I mean, you're saying that, uh, async await is kind of built upon promises. Um, can you shed more light on that? Absolutely. So, uh, async and await are really new syntax for the language. So they add new keywords, they add new ways of putting these uh, new uh, items into your code, but they don't really shift the way that you develop things. Um, So for example, if I have an asynchronous function and I call that function, it will return a promise because inside of whatever is interpreting that language, uh, it knows that I am looking to call a promise um, and to convert my syntax into something that returns a promise. Same thing with await. If I make a normal promise, just uh, const a equals new promise, I can await that just as I would awaiting an asynchronous function. It will uh, basically add a dot then. Now, obviously this gets very complicated um, when you're starting to deal with much larger code bases. But one of the things that's nice is that if you have, let's say that if I pass in a image URL to a user and I want to update that user, I can add an if statement and then an await, and I don't have to worry about trying to do these really complex then chainings where I'm breaking out all of my code into one thing. And then, you know, it, it gets very, very uh, complex without async await in some instances. So it's really just a way of making uh, promises nicer to work with in those instances. So the way I've been using them, and um, you you tell me if I've been using it incorrectly, is um, say I've got a bunch of promises that are mm-hmm. maybe unrelated, um, and I just kind of line after line do an await um, to, to to get my values, and then maybe just plug in all of those values into some function later on. Uh, is that an appropriate way to use it? Just because, I mean, what's to stop it from just hanging up my whole application if I'm waiting on, say, uh, promise one out of three to finish? Does it work that way? Yeah. So um, this goes back to how promises work in general, right? So sure. uh, promises allow much more control, as you had mentioned. And one of the things that's really important when dealing with any form of asynchronicity is making sure to leverage the way that it works, right? So adding an await is nice for us as developers because logically running through line by line is much easier to process. It's much easier to approach. Uh, But the problem there is that you're not really letting them run asynchronously. You're kind of abusing the APIs to make it run uh, just line by line. Right. And 
what I would end up doing is I would break that into a promise all. So I would do promise all the list of promises. And then the nice thing is if you're inside of an async function, you can still await that promise.all because promise.all returns a promise. So I could await the list of promises. Um, if I wanted to make my syntax look maybe just a little bit nicer, I might have array destructuring, turn it into something that's more readable. Uh, but then that way, you're allowing multiple of these promises to run at once rather than waiting for one and then waiting for another, which might cause a decreased performance in your application. So you're suggesting that we have all of our promises run in parallel whenever possible, mm -hmm. and then doing a wait on uh, that kind of parallel run um, for the final copy. Yeah, um, it's, it's important to note that if you're dealing with data that touches on two asynchronous operations, so let's say that I need to make two calls to the server um, to the same data set for some reason, uh, one, I would use transactional uh, calls to try to merge those. But even ignoring that, if I'm waiting for a response of one before I can run the other, I will need to wait for one then the other. Uh, in that instance, promise.all runs them all in parallel, and it can definitely cause problems uh, when trying to mix and match the two. It's just important to keep that in mind as you're developing out using promises. And, and in the circumstance where promise two requires the result of promise one, uh, is the suggested approach to just use straight promises rather than the async await, or, or does it even matter? Um, it, it really doesn't, so long as you as the developer can understand the differences between the two. So long as uh, you're able to understand, okay, I know that await is essentially calling a dot then. Uh, sure. I need to make sure not to use this API too heavily. Uh, so as long as you're relying on your knowledge of async await, there is no real difference between the two as far as I'm aware. So. Got it. So then let's bring up another topic. Um, so observables. So I just mm -hmm. for context, I actually had uh, Ben Lesh on a previous episode, and he talked about um, RxJS. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think observables are strictly part of RxJS, but they do deal with the whole asynchronous JavaScript development, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it is important to note that they're a little bit different. So, ace, uh, and again, I'm not going to be a, a subject matter expert, especially sure. when it comes to observables. There are, you know, Ben Lesh is clearly going to know significantly more than I. Um, however, it's a different pattern of thinking. So observables tend to provide uh, event-based programming, right? So it allows us to, let's say I want to have a resize event that runs something every X number of times that this resize event occurs. I can do that with observables very easily. But the nice thing is that, especially with RxJS, you can do a little bit of interop between them. And sometimes you need to just merge them both together. So for example, if I have a resize event that needs to save data to IndexedDB, right, which is a in-browser sure. database, uh, just so that next time I start up the browser, it knows where I last was. What I might do there is I might uh, listen for the resize event using from event. I might debounce that so it's not saving so often that it's causing lags. Uh, and then what I might do is I might call a promise to IndexedDB uh, or some wrapper around it, and I would have it safe and then let it go. So it's that nice mixture between uh, knowing that they are different and that you can use them separately, but you can also uh, use an observable-based API that you develop 
as a stand-in almost for some of your promises that you have up. So, Got it. Now, in terms of uh, compatibility, um, are we looking at full compatibility between all of the browsers and even Node.js right now, or are we restricted to uh, different uh, versions when it comes to each of these opportunities? Right. So this is the like billion-dollar question for any JavaScript thing, right? Uh, yep. Is X compatible? Um, and the answer to that is a long one, but I'll give you the really short version. Sure. Uh, different APIs have different uh, supports. So uh, promises might not be supported in older versions of IE at all. Uh, async is not supported in some browsers that do support promises. Uh, observables are actually part of mainline JavaScript, but are not landed into the main feature set yet. It's still work in progress. So there's still a lot uh, that you can do to make newer code run on older browsers. Um, and in that instance, uh, you can use something like transpiling either with Babel or uh, TypeScript and Babel uh, to bring it back down to support older versions. Um, something that we haven't touched on quite as much is threaded uh, uses in JavaScript. So JavaScript has web workers on the browser and they have, yep. uh, I can't remember exactly what it's called for Node, uh, worker threads in Node. And both of those have very different APIs. Uh, Node is doing a little bit of work to support much more of the web worker syntax, uh, but there are still huge differences between the way that uh, in particular Node and the browser handle both asynchronicity and threads in general. So it's important to make sure that you understand whichever platform you're developing for. Sure. Um, and then I assume um, this might be out of your, your knowledge scope, but I assume that you also have to look out uh, for different like uh, niches when it comes to maybe serverless or functions as a service that, that leverage JavaScript as well, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, some uh serverless will restrict the amount of resources you can use um others will charge you differently for resources so it's this interesting game where if you need to keep your execution time as low as possible uh using something like worker threads might be highly advantageous to you um but in other instances they might restrict what you're able to do uh i know that a lot of uh I don't know if worker threads do, but I know that uh, like the N API in Node uh, uses very low-level components. So you might have a difficult time uh, letting your server list do something like that. There's a lot that, that should be kept in mind, uh, especially with a lot of server lists being uh, not allowed to uh, keep configurations. So, Sure. So, so now I kind of want you to maybe paint me a picture on some uh, development best practices. I know that this is an audio only podcast, um, so it'll put your storytelling to uh, good use. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what are, I mean, say you're, you're creating a very complex application and it, it requires a lot of, I mean, let's just throw out most client facing applications make tons of API requests, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's kind of the foundation. So what, what's some best practices when it comes to just leveraging all of this uh, asynchronous operations um, in your project? So whether that be inside of loops mm -hmm. or et cetera, just take it wherever you want to take it, sure. this question. So 
like absolute first and foremost, and I think this should really be the answer to any how can you keep X in mind with best practices is really evaluate the way that you're using these things, right? Uh, I know instances in some applications I've worked on that have made a call to one thing and then they have an ID and they'll make a call to another. And really the problem there is that the server has all that data, right? The server has much faster computation than your computer can hope to. Uh, it has the data immediately there, depending on how your data servers are laid out. Um, so it's important to realize that sometimes if you're working on a full stack, you can leverage the server to do much, much more, especially if you're getting GraphQL involved. Uh, if you're using NoSQL databases, data denormalization might be highly advantageous for uh, fast reads. Um, so that's certainly something to keep in mind uh, before anything else. But outside of that, you really want to make sure that you're breaking out that logic that isn't dependent. Uh, so like we were talking about earlier, making sure that promise A and promise B that don't rely on each other for data is running within either promise all or just concurrently in general. Um, it's also important to realize that uh, the event loop has a lot of weird nuances. So I know some instances where uh, animations might be able to request the animation frame uh, for much better performance. Uh, it, so using stuff like that might be able to speed up your uh, uh, application a bit if you're dealing with DOM code. Uh, otherwise, if you're running really expensive operations, right? Um, I know Node Vibrant was one of those things where if you just ran that in your uh, browser, it could be hugely slow. Right. So providing that image quantization into a worker thread allowed us to be able to have much better performance. So it's important to just keep in mind the tools that are at your disposal and trying to leverage what's provided to you the best that you can. Are there and the, the word that's coming? I, it's not coming to my mind, but are there tools to, I guess, audit or kind of um, check the performance of your application and really kind of improve upon it to make sure that you're not getting out of control with these uh, maybe network requests or whatever it may be? Absolutely. Um, the first and foremost one I'm going to mention uh, is the Lighthouse tool that's built into the Chrome DevTools. Uh, the team has put in just tons of effort into it. It's fantastic. Uh, it's kind of like the de facto whenever you want to make a site really performant, you usually turn to Lighthouse just as like a way to brag. <laughs> um, but yeah. there's other tools. There's um, analytics tools that will often provide um, insights to your application. Um, many of those are subscription based, but they also oftentimes provide much more than just that, sometimes error handling. So it depends on your application logic, but usually I personally will turn to Lighthouse for like my side projects. Um, other than that, what you might consider doing is if you're using uh, an application, want to ensure both that it's uh, performant and that it's not going to regression is you might do some form of testing. And within your testing, say something like Jest, you might be able to restrict your timings on things. So you want to make sure that you're not running things too slow and that you are staying within a constraint that you've set for yourself. Got it. And to kind of add on this as another question, I guess sort of similar. Um, say, say I'm writing code, I've got like these N cubed kind of awful um, loops in there. Mm -hmm. They're doing all kinds of um, promises and awaits and all of that good stuff. Are there any tools that will allow me to pinpoint where exactly um, I'm failing. Is that what Jest and all of these other tools can do, or is it not to that extent? Uh, I personally don't know any tools that are 
quite as um, verbose as, as you're describing. Sure. Personally, I'm sure there's something out there. Um, I just don't know any. I know a lot of IDEs tend to do a very good job while you're developing catching things like that. Uh, but sure. I personally just don't know any, of any. So that, that kind of brings me to my next question, because, I mean, you, are, you probably work with a larger team than I do when it comes mm -hmm. to JavaScript developers. So what are some of the questionable things that you've seen people do in terms of their, their asynchronous JavaScript code? I think the favorite thing I've ever seen was totally my fault, mostly because I wrote all the code that was related sure. to the problem. And it was really early into starting with uh, my last company, right when I was starting to get the hang of JavaScript. And prior to that, I had used mostly Python, so very little asynchronous um, stuff in my code. So I remember working on the server one time, and there was some request the user that was doing, and it was within a loop. and at this point, I don't think we had broken out our node code to using uh, different threads. So we went to go test this, and it would completely crash. Like, it would just stop your, uh, your server full stop. Everyone that was on the server would no longer get anything until this operation was done. And it was on, like, a really heavily used site. And I want to say that we had deployed it because it was part of, like, a really last-minute fix that I was trying to push out. So it was one of those things where it was just this this terrible mixture of QA and of me being a brand new developer, you know. So it's really just important to keep in mind both. There's a lot of lessons there. Both uh, keep in mind that you are not the only user, especially on the server, uh, but also QA, 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 QA. So there's a lot of considerations when dealing with uh, asynchronous code. So, so in that circumstance, um... How, I mean, how did you figure out where the problem was um, it, based on all of the auditing? I mean, what does somebody have to do? Do they have to look at and debug code till their eyes bleed? Or, or do these auditing tools help? Um, there, are, circumstance? It, there are absolutely auditing tools that are huge advantages. Um, I sure. know that uh, fairly recently, towards the end of my last job, uh, we had implemented them. And they would just straight up point out where the problem was. Um, sure. At least uh, this code is running very slow. You can also use uh, Chrome's built-in, or Firefox is very similar, um, that will do performance testing um, on the uh, client side, at least. Um, I know there's ways that you can actually hook up, now that you mention it, uh, Node into Chrome's debugging tools uh, using their uh, debugging interface, I believe. Uh, that's also highly advan advantage <laughs> advantageous. Uh, there's a lot of things that you can do out there. I know that even just running through a debugger by hand can be very helpful sometimes, just being able to see what it's doing line by line uh, has caught a lot of my problems just on my own. So uh, it's really down to the developer in particular. In that instance, it was one of our uh, team leads who was really good at just intuitively knowing where things were. So. In, and that was uh, strictly in, in regards to uh, the asynchronous parts of the code, right? Right. Got it. So do you have any kind of last minute words of wisdom that you want to share with the listeners of this episode? Uh, things that maybe um, you wish you knew uh, starting out or, or et cetera? Sure. Uh, tinker. Just tinker with stuff. Um, whether that's your own code, whether that's on the clock. Do you didn't hear me say that? Or off the clock. <laughs> just tinker, right? If you're learning something and if you're experimenting, uh, at least you'll know if it doesn't work, right? Um, the other thing that I've personally 
probably ended up abusing more often than using useful, but uh, I end up liking is that you can use promises within other operations that might not be obvious. So for example, if I need to have a reducer, I can use uh, async await within that reducer. Uh, the syntax is a little wonky when you start getting into that type of stuff, but it can really drastically uh, reduce the amount of code that's uh, within what you're using. The other thing is that using try catch within async await is just a blessing. Uh, so if you have a promise that's throwing an error and you await that promise, it'll bubble out to a try catch block. And there are tons of instances where having that try catch at the top level of the server can uh, prevent uncaught promises from uh, kind of wrecking havoc in your code base. I know that Node is in the future going to make promises crash when you, they are not caught. So it's important to keep that in mind as you go forward. I think that'd be great if they made them crash. Yeah, uh, no, it, it, I definitely agree. It's, it's, it will certainly be a frustration for developers who have maybe taken on technical debt in this element, uh, but it's hugely, hugely advantageous to kind of push the hand of the developer because if you're not catching promises, you're not returning an error to the user. So. Yeah, you're not doing proper error handling. Right, right. So that, yeah, do you have any ideas when that's going to come out? I wanted to say Node 12. I don't think that landed. I have no idea. <laughs> I just it. remember well, reading it a while ago. Maybe, maybe we can hope and dream for that in the, in the near future. Yep. Uh, so I appreciate you being on this episode of the podcast. I, you mentioned a few things that I might uh, want you back on a future episode, like web workers. Yeah. Um, but for now, no, this is this is great. I mean, asynchronous JavaScript development is is always a pain point, uh, especially if you're coming from a different development technology. Mm -hmm, for sure. So thanks for being on the show, Corbin. Yeah, thanks for having me again. I hope you found this episode of the podcast to be valuable towards your JavaScript development. Using promises, callbacks, observables, all that good stuff, it can seem complicated at first, but once you really grasp what's going on and how to use it, it doesn't have to be so bad, and you can start developing some really powerful, really fast uh, JavaScript applications, whether that be the browser or even with Node.js server-side applications. If you want to follow Corbin, he can actually be found on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at crutchcorn. Or you can actually follow his blog, so it's unicorn-utterances.com, both of which I'm going to be including in the show notes that appear on the Polyglot Developer main website. If you found this episode of the podcast to be valuable, it would mean a lot to me if you went into iTunes or whatever podcast network you're listening from and left it a five-star rating and review. Um, go ahead and say something nice about the podcast, maybe something that you learned, so that way other future listeners can get an idea of what they're getting themselves into. If you have suggestions for a future episode, go ahead and reach out to me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is nraboy, so R-A-B-O-Y, um, and that's the first initial of my first name followed by my last name. So just go ahead and reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, send me whatever suggestions you have. Maybe you have an idea of something that you'd like to see, or maybe you have a guest speaker, or maybe you'd like to be the guest speaker. Uh, doesn't matter. Just go ahead and, and shoot me a message. And that concludes episode number 29.